So as you um, heard in, your, in the gospel reading, a uh, man comes up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, man, who appointed, appointed me arbitrator over you? Now, that's actually a compliment, believe it or not, uh, because it means that whoever this guy is, he recognizes that Jesus has some kind of authority. Um, in other words, he can make those decisions, although Jesus pushes it back on him. Now, there's a couple of things going on here that we should probably talk about. Um, the first is, is just inheritance and wealth. Uh, w- when we think of wealth, we think of like cash, because that's really how our economy works. But not in the first century. In the first century, your wealth was tied up uh, into how much land you had especially if that land happened to be productive, like fertile soil, access to water, and all that good stuff. And when dad died, uh, the inheritance, really the lion's share of the inheritance, would go to the firstborn son, or the oldest son. And then a portion of the rest would get divided up amongst the rest of the sons. I actually happen to think that that's a pretty good system. Um, now, the fact that I am the firstborn son may, <laughs> might influence that, but I, I think it's worth a shot. Uh, we should try that out. So, if my parents are watching, just heads up. Um, now, what's probably happening here is that this guy is not the firstborn son, and what he wants is his older brother to divide up or uh, like section off land to then give to him. And for various reasons, you would not want to do that. Uh, And it seems like the older brother here, who is not in the picture, is probably trying to keep the land like in one section. He's trying to keep the, the family plot together. And there are some really good reasons why you would want to do that. So this is one of those situations that's pretty ambiguous. Like, the guy is right in wanting his inheritance, but he may be a little bit short-sighted, and his older brother has maybe a little more wisdom in terms of how to manage their assets. So once Jesus kind of, like, rebuffs him, though, Jesus, he... he takes a turn. He says, be on guard, be, be aware, be, be cautious of being covetous, of desiring more and more, because life does not consist with the abundance of, or in an abundance of possessions. Now, think about the scene. A guy came to Jesus saying, hey, tell my brother to, inherit, uh, to divide up the inheritance. Jesus rebuffs him and then says, hey, to everybody, be careful about being greedy. It's dangerous. If you're that guy, what's going through your head? Uh, just going to slink away? Because <laughs> Jesus just saw right through him. Just right there. 
And he kind of lays it out in front of everybody, which has me thinking, like, if if somebody identifies, like, a core thing going on with you, how do you respond? Do you get defensive? Do you take it? Do you try and and consider it, meditate on it? Now, we don't know how this guy responded, but it's, it's worth considering. Now, Jesus' statement there is extremely wise, of course, it's Jesus, that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Uh, The adage of he who dies with the most toys wins is not accurate. Now, I think most people would agree with that in principle. If I were to you know, take like a microphone and a camera and go around and and bother people and say, hey, is life really all about what you have? Like, we generally know that the answer to that is no, or at least we know that the answer to that should be no. There's probably just a very select few people who would say, yes, having lots of nice things is really what life is all about. Just a very few people would actually say that. My guess is they are all in California, by the way. (laughs) We'll just leave that there. (laughs) Uh, But do we live like that? I mean, like, I know in my head that life is not about how much I have and all the toys and nice things and how nice my house is. But I got to tell you, and I think I'm not the only one, you know, when the news hit about the billion-dollar Mega Millions or whatever the, the lottery thing is, like, who here, I mean, don't raise your hand, but who here was like, huh, that'd be, huh, well, that'd be fun. Man, we'd have, I could have some fun with like a billion dollars. That would be pretty sweet. Like, wealth and possessions are seductive. Not just because you can have nice things and have fun with them or a nice car and those are fun to drive or, or anything like that, but also because we have a tendency to think that, the, that those things bring security. Like, if I just have enough of this, that I'd be set. I wouldn't have to worry. I could relax. I could finally enjoy the things in front of me. And then with that sort of echoing, uh, Jesus takes a hard turn to a parable. A rich man, or a man that has like a whole bunch of land that's really productive. And again... Like, if you have a lot of land, it means you're rich. Uh, Wealth is not based on, like, cash or anything like that. And especially if that land is productive, produces really good crops. This is the first century. So their uh, agriculture technology is really primitive by our standards. I think it would be sophisticated by their standards. It's amazing what ancient people can do or could do. But for us... The yields and stuff like that were pretty poor. And they were often unpredictable. 
you, if you were fortunate enough to even have land, uh, you would be kind of like white knuckle worried about like how you're going to survive until you can see the quality of crops that are going to come in. And then depending on that, you might realize, oh, I'm going to have to go deeper in debt because this isn't, isn't going to be enough to cover everything. Or you can just breathe a momentary sigh of relief and just pray, literally, that next year there won't be a drought and you'll be able to at least grow an adequate, an adequate crop again. The vast majority of people in this culture lived hand-to-mouth on the margins, barely surviving. It gets worse. Because not only are you, are you totally dependent on land that can be very unpredictable, especially in Judea, a little less so up in Galilee, where Jesus is from, but you have other things to deal with. You have the Romans who are, there, are the, the foreign occupation force. And one of the ways that they secured that authority was through taxes. They would tax you on the air to breathe, that you breathe. They would tax you for your protection, which is like an obvious shakedown. It's like they learned that trick in Chicago or something like that, or maybe vice versa and so on, you would have your local authorities and rulers who would also tax you. And then if you're a good, faithful, observant Jewish person, you would also pay a reasonable tax to the temple. The temple became very rich, really the chief priests, they were raking it in. So in other words, nobody is thriving except for a very few number of people who either had tremendous political authority, tremendous religious authority in the temple, or you were wealthy and you had a lot of land. Enter this rich man. Not only in this parable does he have like a lot of land, but he has a crop that just goes nuts. And he calculates things out and realizes that this crop yield has now set him up for life. He's won the lottery. He's whoever it was in Illinois. And he says to himself, all right, I'm set. I now have more than I will ever need. Now, remember what I said Everybody else is barely getting by, like living hand-to-mouth, quite literally. And so this guy says, I'm going to build bigger barns, bigger storage, and I am just going to skate on by into my grave, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the life. And then, according to the parable, God says to him, ha, you're dying tonight. Was it worth it? And then Jesus says, so is it with everyone who uh, has all these treasures but is not rich toward God? Which leads us to a very deceptively difficult question. What does it mean? What does that mean to be rich toward God? And as it turns out, like that phrase and, and, and the language there is, um, it's not quite as clear as we might think. I think what the, the, the question that that raises for us is what should that rich guy have done with this huge abundance? 
what was he supposed to do? I think if you're standing there listening to Jesus tell this parable, the answer actually would have been obvious. Give it away. Like, look, you have more than enough. People are starving, living hand to mouth. Give it up. Now to us, modern, western, capitalist Americans, that can feel a little uncomfortable. Because we tend to think about what we have in terms of, hey, I worked hard for this. I have spent many hours. I, I, I've put a ton of time into education. I work hard. I, I do my job well. I'm always trying to improve. I've made this money. I've built this little empire, whether it's in my house or it's a corporate empire or whatever. Like, this is mine. Why should I feel guilty about using it and enjoying it? The answer to that is, well, that's true, but your neighbor needs it. Now, this is deeply uncomfortable for me. I don't know if it's uncomfortable for you. But I think, because Jesus kind of lets that parable, like, hang, (laughs) like you can, just sort of hearing it ring. Um. It becomes a question really about who God is. Is God a God of abundance or is God a God of scarcity? Is God generous or is he stingy? And if I'm living in a story where the world is essentially stingy. The universe does not give much and I have to claw and I have to save and I have to be greedy and I have to hoard, then I think this parable is going to be a lot more painful than if we buy into this story that, in fact, God is generous. That God has given us a lot. The fact that you live in Albuquerque in the year 2022 makes you some of the richest people ever to have lived in all of human history. And so the question is, how do we live in that generosity into that lavishness that God has given us? Now, that might raise some other questions because this is infinitely uh, more complicated than I'm making it out to be. Um, By the way, pastors typically hate talking about money because I can kind of see people stiffen up and go, ah, yeah, Um, and I don't, Um, because you might find yourself saying like, yeah, but I'm barely scraping by. I I don't have any margin. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. The fact of the matter is, um, this is both a warning, a, a warning that treasures on earth, nice things, things that we fill our lives with, are enormously seductive. It doesn't have to be money. 
And in fact, for a lot of us, it might not be. I personally am not super tempted by having lots of money, although it sure sounds nice. I'm not going to (laughs) complain. But there are other things, good reputation, good family, good job, good social standing, the right education, the right skill set, being smart enough, having the best kids. These are all treasures. And they are all very seductive. And they will all demand of us more and more and more in order to be satisfied. Your job will always ask more of you. Your education will always demand that you get better. Your athletic or intellectual abilities will always, if that's your treasure, will always push you to where you will never be satisfied. If it is your bank account, you'll never have enough. All of those things will also demand your life. When God says to this rich guy in the parable, like, you fool, your life is demanded of you tonight, he's almost like talking on behalf of the wealth that he's accumulated. Like, okay, you got everything you wanted, pay up. Because now you owe me your life. The one who is telling this story, Jesus, on the other hand, is the only one, the only entity, I don't want to call Jesus a thing, but I'm going to, the only thing that reverses that narrative. Everything else in your life will demand more and more and more of you. The way of Jesus is the one where Jesus gives more and more and more of himself. If it is wealth that you seek, it will eventually demand your sacrifice. Jesus is the only one that will sacrifice himself for you. So remember when I said that, that some of, a lot of it comes down to what kind of story you're living in. Is God a God of generosity or is God incredibly stingy? The way of Jesus invites you into the story of a generous God who has actually given his son for you rather than demanding your death, rather than demanding your perfection or your treasure or everything else about you. Rather, instead, he gives himself so that you live And you continue to live in a story of a generous God who loves you, who has won your forgiveness, who has brought new creation and new life into this world and into your heart. I don't know about you, but that's the story that I want to live in. In a few moments, we will receive the sacrament, Jesus coming to us.
And as we eat and as we drink, we receive the very forgiveness, this generously given life, so that we don't have to die for the other things, but rather God has died for us, or Jesus has died for us so that God brings us into his family. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able.